0: just cracking up and couldn't get through it and I thought this is so heartwarming and it's about children and this morning um, I was teaching the kindergartners and I get there's something new that I learn every single Sabbath when I'm in that kindergarten class and they are the most genuine um, sweet honest people that walk the planet let me tell you but there was um This, uh, I guess this child was asked to write a book report on the entire Bible. And some of you women who were in women's ministry this week, I guess, um, read this. And this is the children's Bible in a nutshell. This is what a child wrote. In the beginning, which occurred near the start, there was nothing but God, darkness, and some gas. The Bible says... The Lord thy God is one, but I think he must be a lot older than that. Anyway, God said, give me a light, and someone did. Then God made the world. He split the Adam and made Eve. Adam and Eve were naked, but they weren't embarrassed because mirrors had not been invented yet. (laughs) Adam and Eve disobeyed God by eating one bad apple, so they were driven from the Garden of Eden. Not sure what they were driven in, though, because they didn't have cars. Adam and Eve had a son, Cain, who hated his brother as long as he was able. Pretty soon, all of the early people died off, except for Methuselah, who lived to be like a million or something. One of the next important people was Noah, who was a good guy, but one of his kids was kind of a ham. Noah built a large boat and put his family and some animals on it. He asked some other people to join him, but they said they would have to take a rain check. (laughs) After Noah came Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob was more famous than his brother Esau because Esau sold Jacob his birthmark in exchange for some pot roast. Jacob had a son named Joseph, who wore a really loud sports coat. Another important Bible guy is Moses, whose real name was Charlton Heston. (laughs) Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt and away from the evil Pharaoh after God sent ten plagues on Pharaoh's people. These plagues included frogs, mice, lice, bowels, and no cable. God fed the Israelites every day with manakati. Then he gave him his top ten commandments. These include don't lie, cheat, smoke, dance, or covet your neighbor's stuff. Oh yeah, I just thought of one more. Humor thy father and thy mother. (laughs) One of Moses' best helpers was Joshua, who was the first Bible guy to use spies. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the fence fell over on the town. After Joshua came David, he got to be king by killing a giant with a slingshot. He had a son named Solomon who had about 300 wives and 500 porcupines. (laughs) My teacher says he was wise, but that doesn't sound really wise to me. After Solomon, there were a bunch of major league prophets. One of these was Jonah, who was swallowed by a big whale and then barfed up on the shore. (laughs) There were also some minor league prophets, but I guess we don't have to worry about them. After the Old Testament came the New Testament. Jesus is the star of the new. He was born in Bethlehem in a barn. I wish I'd been born in a barn, too, because my mom is always saying to me, close the door. Were you born in a barn? It would be nice to say. As a matter of fact, I was. And during his life, Jesus had many arguments with sinners like Pharisees and Democrats. (laughs) Jesus also had 12 possums. The worst was Judas Asparagus. Judas was so evil that they named a terrible vegetable after him. (laughs) Jesus was a great man. He healed many leopards and even preached to some Germans on the mount. But the Democrats and all those guys put Jesus on trial before Pontius the Pilate. Pilate didn't stick up for Jesus. He just washed his hands instead. Anyways, Jesus died for our sins. Then he came back to life. He went up to heaven, but will be back at the end of the aluminum. His return is foretold in the book of Revolution. That was pretty funny. I was reading it, and I just I I couldn't keep reading it. It was so cute, and it just reminded me that you know. We're here on this earth for such a short time and you got to just enjoy. You got to enjoy our children. We have to enjoy each other and enjoy the fellowship that we have this morning. This is a special day because it is on a day like today that we affirm, we recognize and we encourage and recognize the ch- the Christian women of our church. Today we want to empower women in ministry, and today we want to tell the women, the young ladies, and the little girls of this church, you are special, you are important, you are of great value to this community of believers, you are needed, and you are passionately loved. Jesus loves you all so much more than you could ever imagine. Women's Ministry is a full church department for the nurture and empowerment of women in all areas of ministry. The General Conference has been intentional in recognizing the role of women in ministry, in their churches, and in their local communities. In fact, the General Conference has a pretty neat um, mission statement, and I think it's up there. Yes, it is. And let me see. That's my sermon title, by the way. (laughs) We'll get back to that. Cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. But this is the mission statement from the North American Division and the General Conference. The mission of the Women's Ministry Department of the North American Division of Seventh-day Adventists is to model Jesus Christ through meaningful relationships and effective ministries. Here are the values and objectives to provide opportunities for women to deepen their faith and experience spiritual growth and renewal, elevate women as persons of worth, address the concerns of women, build networks among women, mentor young women, teens, and girls, promote opportunities for wider service for women, and challenge Adventist women to use their talents and spiritual gifts for the glory of God in the home, in the church, and the community. This is a powerful statement that focuses on the unique role of women in their ministry to their church, to each other, and to the world. As I thought about the message for this morning, I was inspired by this statement, which is truly a statement of service, a statement of service written by women and for women. And I was surprised as I was reading my Bible in preparation for today, to find in a story that we're very familiar with a powerful point that I had never picked up on. And it's a very familiar story that I want to share with you today. I want to invite you to consider the heartwarming story of blind Bartimaeus as he receives his sight from Jesus. I know my husband has preached about this in the past, And I just saw a little bit of a different dimension in this story. Bartimaeus received his sight from Jesus, and this story is highlighted in three of the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I tend to gravitate towards Mark. I really like what Mark does in his Gospel, and in particular in this story, he adds A very unique and significant detail that we'll share later, but I also want to let you know that this story takes place not in Jericho, but in Jericho, and it's. um, I did a little bit of research. I thought, okay, where is this place? You know, where is it found, and what is it like? And I was surprised to discover that in Jericho that Jericho was one of the most beautiful cities in the world. It was inhabited, it was the oldest inhabited place in the world. History tells us that this was a beautiful city. In fact, it's described in the Hebrew Bible as the city of palm trees. Geographically, Jericho is located um, about 250 meters below sea level in an oasis in the Jordan Valley. It's considered a subtropical area, So it has constant sunshine, it has rich soil, and it's a land located um, with just uh, this beautiful spring near it that makes water available to Jericho all, all throughout the year. But it's so strange because this beautiful city is located, is surrounded by this vast wasteland of desert, and it is so dry and hot. And Jericho is famous mainly due to its being the first attacked city and destroyed by the Israelites. Well, but in reality, God had a major role in the destruction of Jericho. If you remember the story of the conquest of Jericho, you'll remember that the Israelites marched around the city once a day for six days. It almost sounds like you're taking a prescription. Okay, you take this once a day for six days. But it wasn't just people marching around the city. You know, and as I thought about this, I thought, how absurd. I mean, who comes up with this sort of a military strategy where you walk around with your priests, basically your Levites, at the front of the row, and you've got armed guards, and people are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and they're blowing trumpets, and you're walking around the city once every day, then you go home, you come back the next day, and you do the exact same thing. But I just love the fact that God doesn't necessarily work within my framework of logic. And that's okay. What we think is the right way isn't necessarily so. On the seventh day, the command was that they were to walk around the city seven times. And as they completed the the seventh turn around the city, then they were to shout out and yell at the top of their lungs. And the walls came tumbling down by the power of God. That is amazing. After Jericho was destroyed, Joshua pronounced a curse on the city. And the curse was that if it was ever rebuilt, the builder of Jericho would lose his eldest and youngest son. That was the curse. But because human beings are so hard-headed, someone went and rebuilt Jericho. A gentleman by the name of Hiel of Bethel rebuilt it, and just as Joshua had foretold on behalf of God, the oldest and the youngest of his sons died. Because this was a cursed city, you would almost expect that Jesus would avoid it. Why would he go through a cursed city? But the, but the, but the story tells us that Jesus goes to Jericho. I love it. Jesus always breaks with what is expected. He not only visits Jericho, but he's passing through on his final journey to Jerusalem. And Mark's version of this event contains at least this unique and significant detail. While all three writers record that Bartimaeus annoyed the crowd and those who were standing near him, as he yelled out to Jesus, begging for mercy, only Mark describes the response of the crowd when Jesus pays attention to Bartimaeus's call. So let's go through and let's take a look at this Bible verse. And I'm going to look it up in the Bible. And I love... Uh, the trans, the um, NIV version of this text. So let's read the story together. Then they came to Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. And I didn't change the screen. I'm sorry. Okay. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. Let me go back to verse 49. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. In the midst of the chaos, someone gives Bartimaeus instructions, significant instructions. In other words, you risk so much by making such a fool of yourself as you call out to Jesus and you beg for pity. Why don't you just take the next step? Get up. Take an affirmative action. Get up. But why? Why would he do that? He would do that. Because Jesus was calling. He was calling Bartimaeus. Jesus is calling us. What could this call from Jesus mean to the women of this church? What could this call of Jesus mean to men and women called to ministry? Because you know, that's exactly what we are. We are called to ministry. We are commissioned to proclaim the good news and the love of Jesus Christ. You know, the Greek word, it's interesting here, they say, cheer up on your feet. The Greek word is tharsio, which translated here as cheer up can mean be of good courage. So you can stick that in there. Instead of cheer up, you can say, be of good courage. Or you can say, fear not. Another translation would be feel confident. Additionally, a translation could be uh, read as to be firm or resolute in the face of danger or adverse circumstances, to not be afraid. These meanings provide awesome counsel for all of us, for all of us who are called by Jesus to ministry. So we need to cheer up. Also earlier in this chapter, Mark describes Jesus as eagerly welcoming the children for a blessing. He wants the children to come to him. It's his form of calling the children to him. And at the same time, he has to rebuke his disciples because they were in disagreement about letting the children come to him. But Jesus says in verse 14 of Mark, he says, "'Let the children come to me.'" Jesus was similarly welcoming with Bartimaeus, as he calls him. At the same time, in the same chapter, in verses 22 and 21 and 22, a wealthy man approached Jesus on his knees, and Jesus called him, just as he called Bartimaeus. And he, the man, he called the man to follow him. And the Bible says that the man's face fell. I don't know if I included this in this. Oh, I didn't. Those are my children. I'll share with you later. <laughs> Jesus called him to follow him. But the, the, the NIV version says that his face fell. Other, another translation read, he lost face. This man had trouble giving He had trouble with the whole concept of hearing the call. He had trouble with the whole idea of following Jesus. He just couldn't give. He couldn't give away his wealth. This unnamed rich man stands in stark contrast to this poor beggar, Bartimaeus, who when Jesus called him, he threw off possibly his only belonging, his coat. And he threw it down To follow Jesus. See, back in those days, it was um, obvious that if you had a disability, you had to be a beggar or you were very poor because it was considered a curse or the result of your sins or the sins of your relatives, of people from from your family. In short, it appears that much of Mark 10 centers around the call of Jesus to individuals, Nestled into this context is an amazing story of vision and hope. It's not only about healing. Yes, Bartimaeus received his sight, and that's an awesome thing. But it's also about responding to Jesus' call, to responding to the invitation of God to become more than what we are, to become more than you can ever imagine. It's about getting on your feet It's about standing up. It's about rolling up your sleeves and answering to Christ and saying, what do you want me to do? And where do you want me to go? And I will go. Where do you want me to serve? See, God believes in you. Really, God believes in you. He believes in your abilities. He's ready and willing to equip you for his service. What does the call of Jesus look like and sound like to you? What does it mean to you today? What does the call of Jesus look like and feel like for me, for my family? It's with a flood of emotion, really, that I look back to how my husband and I were called to this ministry. See, Dante was convicted by God that God was calling him and something needed to be done. In 1994, we were on our way to Rwanda in Africa as missionaries. We had accepted a call from the General Conference to work in a small rural hospital in Rwanda. The name of the hospital was the Mugonero Adventist Hospital. And it was early in 94, as we were preparing to leave. The idea was for us to leave here and spend about a month in Belgium and then head to Rwanda. But our call was canceled. We got notification that the Hutus and the Tutsis were at war. Civil war had broken out in Rwanda, and our call was canceled. We followed the news very closely because we knew the um, husband and wife physician couple who were working there, and we were worried about them. They were able to escape um, on a French caravan, Some of the employees who chose to stay, some were killed, and others escaped. To say the least, we we were definitely disappointed and saddened by the whole situation, but there was a fire that kept burning within. We knew that God wanted us to do something and to serve somewhere, and shortly after that, uh, Dante, along with some um, friends from church who had been working In youth ministry, decided that okay, maybe God is calling us to the ministry in a different way, and so he went and checked out Monte Morelo's university. He was there for a week and came home excited, and he says, "I know that God is calling me to the ministry." And let me tell you what that looked like for me. I had a baby. I had Daniel. He he was a newborn. And I was a little worried. I had a job, we had a house, we had our things, we had this and we had that. And I had issues. And he was ready to go and I was not. And he was very patient with me. And one day I sat with my dad and I was talking to him about this. And he said to me, when God calls, you don't say no. And that is all I needed And it kept ringing in my head that when God calls, you don't say no. In January of 1996, Jessica was three weeks old. Daniel was almost going to be two. We packed our belongings um, in storage. We sold our home and two cars and whatever we could fit in an old 86 Suburban. We took that and we headed to the University of Montemorelos. And I will tell you that that was the huge, the most, the biggest wake-up call of my life. Because we arrived in Montemorelos to a house that by all American standards would be uninhabitable, but that's where we lived for the first three months that we were in Montemorelos. In my kitchen, I had a long counter and a sink and nothing else. There were no cupboards. There was nothing. And boy, I had many chats with God. And I thought, what? am I doing here why are we here are you serious really (laughs) and um, to make matters worse we arrived in January by March the middle of the second semester the pastor from whom we were renting told us that he had received a call to go to Montemorelos and he needed his house back so we started looking and looking and looking and when you're in a college town Like Montemorelos, housing is not easily available, not readily available. And one day, in just sheer desperation, I knelt down, and I was angry at God. And I said, this is your problem. It's not my problem. You brought us here. We listened. You know, I didn't say no. Here we are. And I have two babies to take care of. If it were just Dunt and myself, then OK, we'd figure something out. But I have two babies, and this is your problem, and you're going to figure it out. And I got up and walked away, and I went to work. I had gotten a job. I was teaching English to fourth graders at the Institute of Languages on campus. And I showed up, and I was, I was upset. I felt desperation sitting in. I was angry, and, and all these emotions came down, and I sat with my boss, sweet lady who happened to also be the wife of one of Dante's theology professors, and I poured out my heart to her, and I thought that she was going to say, poor Patty, I'm so sorry you're going through this. And she sat me down and said, look, you are at the foot of the mountain. You can pack your stuff and go home. You can go home to your nice home, to your cars and to your job and to all the things that are nice in the U.S. Or you can climb this mountain and you will know that Christ is with you as you climb. It's your choice. But either way, whether you go home or you stay and climb the mountain, God climbs with you. You're not alone. Ah, oh, That's not really what I wanted to hear. But I got up off my feet and I just kept going. We had about two weeks to get out of that house. And that Friday evening, we showed up at church because first-year theology students all have to serve as deacons, so Dante had to be at the church for every single service. And I didn't like staying home by myself because the colonia where we lived was all dirt to get there. (laughs) There were chickens and cows that walked up and down, and it was very, very dark at night. I wouldn't get water after 3 o'clock every day. So it wasn't really comfy there, and I'd just rather take the kids and go to church, be in church with him. The vice president of student affairs showed up that Friday to church and talked to my husband and said, What are your plans? Why are you here? How long will you be here for? And so Dante told him that he was a theology major and was there with his family and had two children. And he says, About a year ago, you came on campus to visit, he said, and back then, you probably don't remember this, but you put in an application for student housing. He said, there's a long waiting list for it. It's about a year, but it's your turn. And, and Dante was speechless, and, and he said to him, if you want this apartment on campus, it's yours. Stop by my office Monday morning to pick up the key, and you can just, if you like it, you keep the key. He said the only problem is there's four of you and it's a one bedroom and we said who cares it didn't matter. You know what my early monday morning we went to see the apartment it was a two bedroom and all I could do church was to just fall on my knees and I was so embarrassed because I thought how disrespectful of me to talk to my god like that. But you know what god is such a good god. He is such a good god. That he gets it. He gets our hurts. He gets it when desperation sets in. He gets it when we feel like we're at the end of the rope and there's nowhere else to go. And he is just so amazing and so forgiving. And I did. I fell on my knees and I said, I'm sorry. I am so sorry for my lack of faith. I am so sorry for thinking that you would bring us this far and just let us fall. Because he doesn't work like that. That's not the kind of God we have. And so I am so grateful to God for all the things that he has done in our lives. And I want to show you, these are some of the pictures. These are my children, the first summer that we came home from Montemorelos to work for the summer. And this is my house on campus. That's student housing that's behind the house. And these are other student pastors along with my husband who were studying at Montemorelos. I think this was on a Friday because the theology majors had Friday off because they were all assigned to churches um, starting their sophomore year. And <laughs> I have to leave that picture up because I want to tell you that today by this Bible story encourages us to rejoice and celebrate, to celebrate with people like Bartimaeus, the underdog, the downcast, or maybe the ones that we don't think will go very far. But we celebrate with Bartimaeus and simultaneously we contemplate our own call. And I think about my call and what God wants us to do. We, I, I ask myself, can God truly use me? Can he work through me? Am I really called to serve in a church? Is that my role? Are we really called to teach, to serve, to preach? I thought, no way, not me. God needs people with a different personality, maybe not one like mine. And you see, never in my wildest dreams could I imagine that the guy that I fell in love with and married the monolingual, Spanish-speaking, undocumented Peruvian, would one day become a U.S. citizen who would eventually pursue a master's degree at Andrews University and one day become the pastor of a church where he needed to speak in English. I never could imagine that. And that is Dante. Big smile. That is in Lima, Peru, the day we came back from the U.S. Embassy and he was given his visa which made him legal in this country. That is what God's call looks like for me. That is what God's call is like for my family. Now, do you really think there's room for doubt about what God can do in us? There is no room for doubt. God is calling each of us for a special purpose, The things that you least imagine, God needs you for those things. The Bible records the detail of other individuals such as Noah, the worst evangelist of all time. The man, the poor man preached for 120 years and only his family got in the ark. Moses had a speech impediment, but God used him in a special way. Samuel was only a little boy when God called him. And God used him in a powerful way. Jeremiah was a crybaby, the author of Lamentations. But he was God's spokesman for a people who needed to hear what God had to say. What does your calling look like? What does your story look like? In the midst of our shortcomings and our brokenness, God wants to use us. God wants to use you in a powerful way. History also records the story of a young teenage girl, Ellen Harmon, who later became known as Ellen G. White. She was called to be a leader and to boldly speak God's message to an emerging new church. This was a message that would bring, her message was a timely message that would bring um, health and hope and healing to many people. It was a message about a savior as well a Savior who is soon to come, and that message remains relevant for us today. The history of the Orange Seventh-day Adventist Church in the future will also paint a beautiful portrait of women, of men, and children who are called for a special purpose. Implied with the call to minister in the church comes the underlying message that God has a vision and God has a plan for you, that you are deeply loved, and that you are wanted. None of this, though, comes without a challenge. You see, when we're tempted to act contrary to God's call, we need to remember that you have been called, like Bartimaeus, you are being called by Jesus. You're being called by the Lord to minister, and we need to take that seriously. When God calls, Don't say no. When tough times come in ministry, either if you're an elder or a deacon or teaching a Sabbath school in the kids division or wherever you are, when tough times come, you need to remember that it's not about you. It's about the great controversy. A war when a soldier is shot in war, he doesn't ask himself, what did I do or say to deserve it? In spiritual warfare, being on the firing line sometimes comes with the territory. But that's okay. Really, it is okay because we have way more reason to rejoice and celebrate. For starters, your call by God is a special call. You've been been called to serve the greatest leader ever, Jesus Christ. You can rejoice because you're called to serve your church. Your family and your home, in your community. You are a promoter of hope. You are the dispenser of the best news known to humanity. In a sense, you are providing water, like we heard about this morning living water to the thirsty. There are so many thirsty in this world that has seen way too many mirages. We are about the business of eternity, and we can rejoice because our lives will serve a positive and significant purpose, however menial some of the tasks may seem. Jesus asked some of his followers to fetch a colt for him. He asked others to prepare a meal, and yet he asked others to move a stone. All of these could in all likelihood be perceived as menial, meaningless, and pointless tasks. Why do you want me to move a stone, Lord? What for? The guy is dead. There's no point in that. It'll stink if we move the stone. But from these simple, seemingly meaningless and pointless tasks came majestic events. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on that cult the communion service where he broke bread with his disciples, and the resurrection of Lazarus. Church, we can take heart because our lives have a purpose and a meaning. We mature in ministry so that we can more effectively serve. We can rejoice because when God calls us to minister, this is an opportunity to be a blessing to others. This just comes, being a blessing, it just comes as a natural result of serving. What greater joy can one have in life than to be called to serve and to bless others? In short, whatever our challenges in our Christian walk and service, we would do well to remember Christ's words to Bartimaeus because those are Christ's words to you today. Women of this church, men and children, cheer up. On your feet, he's calling you. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you this morning for being here among us, for sharing with us, for encouraging, empowering, and affirming your church. Dear God, help us to always have a willing disposition a cheerful spirit to seek you, to serve you, and to serve others. Thank you for being with us and for hearing our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.